Welcome to Vision of Zion. This is episode number 21. Today we're going to talk about or more about the last days and I've laid some foundations in the prior podcast so let's move forward with some of the material now and we'll take as long as it takes to go through everything and examine everything. Today I thought I should start by talking about signs. What are signs and what do the scriptures have to say about them especially from the Old and New Testament. So, the word sign is an interesting word. It has different connotations. The fact that there are going to be signs of the second coming, those of us who have read any of this material know that this is a fact. There have been things said for centuries, in fact even thousands of years, about what would happen in the future. And this all points to helping us know when the second coming is going to occur. When is the Savior going to return to the earth? And the answer is, we are closer now than we have ever been. So let's talk about signs for a few minutes during this episode. The word signs, let's analyze it both from the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And the first place it appears is right in the first chapter of Genesis. The Lord is creating the earth and he is making the different levels of the creation to organize this planet and he gets to uh, verse 14 and God said let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years so let's talk about that word signs that's where it first appears and does it mean what we think it means so if you go to the Strong's Concordance Hebrew Dictionary, number 226, it says that this word that is in Hebrew means signs, tokens, and miracles, marks, pledge, or a banner, remembrance, a miraculous sign, a warning, a standard, a proof, a distinguishing mark. So the word gets used a lot of different ways. But we get this uh, idea that the sign is clearly not meaning a sign to mark, let's say, the change of the year, the change of the seasons. Those are covered by the word seasons, days, and years. So think of that, that term. This is the first time we read in the Bible that God is going to give us hints. And, of course, these are referring to, I think, pretty much hints in the sky. So where can we read about any signs in the heavens? The main one that comes immediately to mind is the star that marked the path for the wise men who visited the baby Jesus after he was in the house. If you read carefully, he wasn't in the manger anymore. It says when they, when they came to the house, they, they saw Jesus. So he was already in a residence when they finally arrived. The star must have been up there for guidance for quite a while. It's an interesting chapter, chapter 2. We're going to come back to it in a minute. But we all know the story so well that I'm not going to get into the details of the star. But we know that there was a star. And we know that the wise men interpreted the meaning of the star that 
King Herod was interested, allegedly interested in having this new king found, except his motivations were extremely corrupt and dangerous. We'll talk about that later on. And then another example of a sign besides the star is in the Book of Mormon, in the Book of Helaman. There's a prophet preaching. His name is Samuel. And he gave the people a sign prior to the birth of Jesus Christ. So another sign in a different continent. I'm going to read it here. Behold, I give unto you a sign. For five years more cometh. And behold, then cometh the Son of God to redeem all those who shall believe on his name. And behold, this will I give unto you for a sign at the time of his coming. For behold, there shall be great lights in heaven, insomuch that in the night before he cometh there shall be no darkness, insomuch that it shall appear unto man as if it was a day. Therefore, there shall be one day and a night and a day as if it were one day. And there was no night. And this shall be a sign to them. And they shall know at the rising of the sun and the setting, therefore, they'll know it's a surety that there's two days and a night. I guess if they had clocks too, they could tell. But anyway, nevertheless, the night shall be not be dark, and it shall be the night before he is born. So, sure enough, five years later, people were doubting this would happen, but there was this time right at the birth of the Savior in the across, you know, across the globe. But what they witnessed is the sun went down, and then the sky remained lit, and all night long it was light, and then the sun came up the next day, and the sign had been given. There were many people who didn't believe it was going to happen, and threatened with death those who continued to believe on this prophecy. And in fact, the day was set aside that they would be killed if the sign wasn't fulfilled. And then when the sign was fulfilled, those who doubted it were, of course, extremely regretful, and fell to their knees they were fearful but it saved the righteous who were believing and held faithful to the prophecy all right let's go to matthew 24. jesus is sitting on the mount of olives i think he just got done preaching and then the disciples came to him privately it says which means the crowds weren't around is what i imagine just his closest followers and they said to him tell us when shall these things be? Because he had talked about the fact that there would not be one stone left upon another with regard to the temple. So they're saying, when, we, when is this going to be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and at the end of the world? Now, end of the world is an interesting phrase. It's found in the book of um, Matthew 24 and also probably elsewhere. And Joseph Smith indicates that the end of the world means the destruction of the wicked. It doesn't mean that the globe, the sphere called Earth, is going to disappear or be destroyed. Although there is a revelation that talks about the Earth passing away and coming forth as a new planet or a renewed planet. So I don't know what passing away means, but the phrase end of the world, Joseph Smith says, the destruction of the wicked. And that is consistent with, or maybe worldly things, that's consistent with our subsequent reading in the book of Revelation when the planet is still there even though it's gone through the cleansing process and trials and tribulations which we're going to talk about in a minute alright and by the way I'm going to at the end of this podcast leave you with a little teaser about the, what's going to come up in the future 
So just bear with me. I'll give you some interesting pointers at the end that you can think about before the next podcast drops. Okay, so we're back to Matthew. They're asking him, you know, what are the signs of your coming? Now that's a Greek word. You might know that, and if you didn't know, this is interesting to know, that uh, the language Jesus spoke was Aramaic. So the Greek is clearly not the original tongue in which Jesus spoke. It must have been recopied. But Aramaic, which I've heard, I don't know, is in some way similar to Hebrew, but that was the language the people spoke at the time. So, But the Greek meaning of the word sign is similar to the one in the Hebrew. This is Strong's Concordance, Greek Dictionary 4592. And this is also the same exact word sign and the same Greek word used in Mark and Luke, which also describe this event. So it means a sign, a mark, prodigy, portent, like an unusual occurrence, transcending the common course of nature, signs of portending remarkable events soon to happen, or miracles and wonders by which God authenticates the men sent by him, or by which men prove that the cause they are pleading is God's. So this is kind of a fleshed out definition of the word sign as used in the Greek. So they're asking him, you know, what can we, what kind of miracle or wonder can we expect? So there are signs that precede his coming. And he gives a whole list in Matthew 24, which we are going to carefully analyze in a future podcast very, very soon. It might be one or two away, but we're going to get to that. But I want to talk about another type of sign while we're on the topic of signs. And these may not be heavenly. So we've pointed out two heavenly signs. The birth of the Savior, the sign of his birth in the, another continent in the New World, where they had a day and a night and a day except for one day. And we also have a future sign in the heavens, which is stated in Joel, repeated by the Savior, and it also appears later on in the Bible. Joel 2, 30 and 31. And I will shew wonders in the heavens and in the earth, and fire and pillars of smoke. And by the way, this is clearly talking about the last days in the book of Joel. Second verse. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and t- the terrible day of the Lord come. Now, so that's still to come, another heavenly sign. And then, of course, we have the sign of the coming of the Son of Man, which Jesus talks about. And I'm going to cover that in a minute, but I want to cover another aspect of the word signs that we use. So we know that there are signs that um, appear among people and they are supposed to follow those who believe. There's a verse that says, and signs shall follow them that believe. And I'm going to read some verses here. This is Mark 16, 15. This is after Jesus gives the apostles the admonition to go into the world and to preach to every creature the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's what he says. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So these are signs that follow believers. In other words, they're not intended to try and convince people who are non-believers. These are things that will happen if you are a believer. So those aren't signs of the 
end times. Those are just signs of faith and to reinforce belief. And also it has a very functional role to give these types of blessings to people who believe. And in 1 Corinthians 14.22, I found another reference to signs. This is an interesting one. It says, Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serves not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. So here Paul is saying, you know, there are some signs that will help convince non-believers to believe. And there are some signs that are only meant to benefit the believer, such as the gift of prophecy. It's very dangerous ground for people who actually seek for a sign. It's an indication that there's a problem. And I'm going to read this here real quick, Matthew 16, 1 through 4. The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and tempting desired him, Jesus, that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, ye say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, can ye discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? A wicked, this is a key here, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall be no sign given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas, and he left them and departed. Now, I want to tell you a funny story. So this here says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh a sign. In the Book of Mormon, we see a lot of examples where there's an antichrist who is trying to lead the people astray from the teachings of Moses that have been uh, passed down for centuries. And they say if they don't get a sign, they won't believe. And it's interesting to watch how Jacob deals with Sherem the Antichrist and how the other prophets deal with people who say, I want a sign. Now, here's the funny story. I came across, I wish I again kept the reference. I didn't always keep references on these things, but I promise you that I read this and it can be, it can be found. Joseph Smith is preaching to a group of people and this one man starts to demand for a sign. You know, show me a sign. And Joseph Smith said to him, Sir, you are an adulterer. Because the scriptures say that it is a wicked and adulterous generation who seeks for a sign. Therefore, you are an adulterer. And the man looked, I, I don't remember the description of his face, but imagine he must have been shocked by the accusation of there was a man in the crowd who said, shouting, he said, It's true, it's true. I caught him in the very act. So let that be a lesson. Wicked and adulterous generations and people seek for signs rather than the faith to believe. They want to be proven. And we find time and again that you know, seeing a physical sign on the earth is not going to convert somebody. Even when there was a day and a night and a day, as if it were one day. It only helped these people in the new world to repent for a short time and they were back to their old ways. So, you know, God promises signs, but we're going to go back to the type of signs that are relevant to the second coming. But first I want to cover one aspect. One of my listeners said that she really enjoyed being reminded that sometimes God keeps his plans hidden. Okay, so sometimes there's no sign of certain things to come. We just have some of some of the scattered ones, but even though there's a lot more that's going to happen. And I want to go back to Matthew 2 as an example of this to reinforce 
her appreciation for that point. Because when Jesus was born, this is Matthew 2, verse 1, in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east of Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east, and are come to worship him. And when Herod had heard, so, so there were wise men watching for the signs. And the scriptures in the Old Testament said that this king would be born in Bethlehem. So this piqued the interest of Herod the king. It says when verse 3, when Herod had heard these things, Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. Well, why was he troubled? Well, he's got a competition coming. This other king who's going to usurp his authority. He didn't like to hear about that. He was troubled, it says. Verse 4, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. They said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, For thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, this is a quote from the Old Testament, Art thou not the least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Verse 7, Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, so he hears this, oh, okay, that's a wonderful thing, big group of people, and he calls the wise men, who he thinks are going to do his uh, dirty work, right? Calls them privily, privately, inquired of them diligently the time that the star appeared. He then sent them to Jerusalem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Oh, yeah, right, he wanted to worship this child. So they heard the king, they departed, they saw the star in the east, it went before them till it came and stood over where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding joy. Okay, then they do their thing with, with baby Jesus. And then it says, And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. So we see that uh, this sign and then a dream led them to not return because it was revealed to them in a dream what Herod's real plans were. All right. It says, Then Herod, verse 16, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wrath, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and then all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. In the meantime, Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, was warned in a dream and leave Bethlehem until Herod's death. But can you see, this is the point I'm trying to make, can you see that if the prophets had given even more information that this could have put Jesus even at more risk? So this is a really good, probably the best example of how prophecy and not saying too much is important because Satan was working clearly through Herod to destroy the plan of what Jesus was sent to earth to do. And the Lord quickly and quietly made an escape. It was a close call, if you think about it. If Joseph hadn't had the dream, if he hadn't heeded the dream, I mean, obviously Jesus, God would have protected Jesus in some way or another. But through these means, we see that we don't want to have the Lord revealed too much. Because if he can do that with reference to the Savior, what can happen if he talks too much or reveals too much about other things? So that's just a passing note to reinforce last week's podcast point. Okay, so to summarize, signs of the second coming are given to us. They give us advance warning. 
they are for the believing. I don't know that the unbelieving pay much attention to the signs. I didn't hear anybody say when the Jews returned to Jerusalem, wow, you know, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. And then continue on with that. No one exults in the fact that it was a fulfillment of prophecy. One of the biggest prophecies. But there it is, but no one really pays attention to that part of it. So you can see that these are not for the unbelieving people. Signs can give us hope and faith, you know, the power to endure or the willingness to endure. And they help, and again, they help us prepare for events to come. We can prepare better if we know things are coming and when things are coming, right? Now, we also know that no one knows when the Savior is going to be on the earth. He says, no one knows, only my Father knows. That's also in Matthew 24. But let me describe for you some other signs. These are not in the heavens. It says, uh, for there, this is verse 24, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall shew great signs and wonders. Okay, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall see the very elect. And then Joseph Smith adds, who are of the covenant. So the elect doesn't mean Jews. It means anybody who takes upon themselves the covenant to follow Jesus Christ. Okay. If it were possible, they could even be deceived. If they don't have the, as President Nelson has been saying, the, uh, the guiding, directing, and comforting influence of the Holy Ghost. So that's what we need to have as our, as our constant to get through these times. So, these false prophets are going to be able to show great signs and wonders. Does that mean on earth or in the heavens? I don't know. But go back and look at what Moses competed with when he was trying to show the Pharaoh to let his people go, let God's people go. There were miracles performed even by the Pharaoh's men. And so we can't just look at out, outward signs, but they're there to assist and to help us. Okay, and then Revelation 13 talks more about the power of the beast and the second beast to heal the first beast after he was mortally wounded. So we have some really interesting things that we have to pay attention to and not be deceived in the future. And then finally, this one part, for uh, this is uh, the Savior talking about this final sign in the heavens, because I've tried to focus mainly on heavenly signs in this podcast, and that they are real things we can be looking for in the future. Mainly Joel 2 is left, and now this one here. This is what everybody knows about, Matthew 24, 27. For as the lightning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, so shall the coming, so also the coming of the Son of Man be. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now it's interesting that the earth is mourning and the tribes are mourning his coming. Well, they're not prepared. This goes back to this whole thing about it's for the believers, these signs. If you're not paying attention, if it isn't moving you and persuading you to get ready, it's too bad. It's going to be a bad day. It's, uh, it's going to be good for some and tough for many others. In closing, I want to cover two points. One is that you can kind of group the events into basically three categories. 
with some subparts. The first phase of the latter days is restoration. The second part of the, of the latter days is ripening. It's the wheat and the tares growing together and then there's a harvest. The next part of the last days is tribulation. And after the tribulation, as the Savior says in Matthew 24, that's when the sign of the Son of Man is going to come. That is the second coming. And after the second coming, we have more amazing, miraculous events that transforms the earth. And we call that period of time that follows the millennium. Let me go over a little bit on each one of these points. The restoration is many things. First, we see already, right in front of our eyes, in many of our lifetimes. Some of us are a little older than others. I wasn't there for this, but there was the return of the Jews through edict by Gentile nations to return to their homeland. I believe it was 1947. I apologize for not checking first. But that's one restoration. But there's also talk in the New Testament about two things. One, before the Savior comes, there would be a falling away. And the Greek word is apostasia, which is apostasy. Okay, a spiritual falling away. And then it also talks about a restoration or restoration of all things. So we have a falling away, we have a restoration. Now what that means for you, you can do your research. I'm going to emphasize from my church's point of view what additional restoration was required besides the Jews returning to Jerusalem and the spiritual restoration that we believe is needed to occur. Interestingly enough, just a side note, many of us, I think growing up, believed that the restoration of the fullness of the gospel, of the fullness of all things, kind of occurred with Joseph Smith Jr., who had a vision of God and Jesus, was called to be a prophet, we believe, and then brought forth additional records which in some cases clarified points of doctrine in the Bible and also gave additional insight plus the Book of Mormon which in, in which a lot of that is contained so I'm going to refer back to it but recently in the last four or five years President Russell Nelson who now is the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints he said that the restoration has just begun and Whatever you believe, restoration is not done. It's, a, it's either just starting or it's going to get started up again like a second type of restoration, which is the, maybe phase two is what I really mean to say. And because there's so much packed into the future restoration, I can see why President Nelson would use that term, it's just begun. We're just the beginning of the restoration. All right. Next I want to talk about is the ripening. We have the wheat and tares, indistinguishable when they're small. These blades of grass, one becomes a beautiful stalk of grain that can be harvested for good, and the other becomes a weed. And once they grow together and mature, then we can tell them apart. Okay, 
we're in that period, I believe, right now, where there's ripening going on. Are we bearing good fruit, or are we going to be bearing bad fruit? And the Lord, in His infinite mercy, has been allowing these things to grow together for a long time. And we see, in my opinion, I bet a lot of you would agree with me, we see an acceleration of the ripening process right now in our day and age, just in the past few years. If you say, look back five or six or seven years, how different are are things in our societies compared to then? They are radically different. And yet we thought in the 70s and 80s, things were already getting very different. Well, now it's really different and it's accelerating. If you go back and look at Matthew 24, the Lord said, except he cut the tribulation short, nobody would survive. I'm paraphrasing, but we'll, we'll cover it. But the Lord is accelerating this so that we can get through this process as quickly as possible. At the same time, though, the counterbalance is that he wants to give people enough time to repent and get their houses in order so that they can enjoy the second coming instead of mourning about it. All right. So during the tribulation, a number of things are going to happen. We have a gathering and we have separation. Okay, what's the gathering? The gathering of Israel. This is another touchstone upon which President Nelson has been talking. Her biggest job is to gather Israel on both sides of the veil. I've heard that, I don't know, since he became the president of the church, maybe a thousand times. <laughs> you know, it's being repeated over and over again. It's entirely consistent with what the scriptures are talking about. And the separation that occurs is that the wicked and the righteous are going to separate. There's going to be a polarization. Hmm. Is polarization happening right now in our societies across the world? Do we have polarizing for forces going on? Absolutely. This polarization and this process is what we're talking about. The righteous and the wicked are going to be in different camps. They can't live together. They're going to separate. Those who remain will probably sustain persecution. Those wherever you're inspired to go can find refuge. Now the church used to initially, the char church, used to try and gather people physically into what they called Zion. We had places of gathering. We would send missionaries out and say, go to Zion, go to Zion. And we would try and gather people into a body or bodies of people. We had people gathered in New York, and then we went to Portland, Ohio, and then we went to Missouri, then we went to Nauvoo, and eventually we wound up pioneering in the West, which was initially outside of the United States for a very short time until the end of the Mexican American War. It became a, a U.S. territory shortly after they got there in 1847. So there's been this gathering mentality and it continued for another 100 years, 120 years, I would say. Come to Zion. My grandfather, they joined the church in Europe. They came here and they had sponsors. They had an immigration fund set up to help people pay for their transportation to come to Zion and to gather together. This was a big emphasis. And I believe it was, I don't know the exact year, but it was in the 1960s 
and an apostle gave a talk about it's time to build Zion where you live. If you're from Europe, you stay in Europe. If you're in California, which used to be anathema to go there in the 1850s under Brigham Young, you didn't want to go look for gold in California. That was anathema, you know. He said, basically, go and be damned if you go to California. Well, that's all changed now, all these years later. You're supposed to build Zion in the stakes where you live. Stake is S-T-A-K-E-S, thinking of a tent held up by posts and by outer edge of the, of the tent is held by stakes. So we use that analogy, we're building stakes for the church. We have thousands of them now across the globe. So we've been building I suspect, and I, I'm not uh, speaking for the church, but I'm speaking based on my impressions and based on what I see happening, reading a lot. I think there's going to be additional physical separation between the righteous and the unrighteous in the coming years. I don't know when, I don't know how or why. I do believe that we're going to see an influx of people leaving places where they don't feel comfortable living anymore. I mean, look, let's let's take a, an extreme example. It's a modern example, so it's not that extreme. But we have Christians who are being murdered in countries where they are a minority in the Middle East, for example. Okay, not everywhere, but there's no religious tolerance. We see religious factions or ethnic groups attacking and killing one another in different countries. I think of examples I've heard from Africa, and you hear of things going on in Syria or, or other places in the Middle East. So there is persecution. I've heard about the Coptic Christians in Egypt who are being, um, to some degree, uh, persecuted and killed for their beliefs. They're some of the oldest Christians on the face of the earth in Egypt. So we have persecution. On our soil in the United States of America, we're not seeing that yet, but we are seeing the beginnings of it, I believe. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ or a believer in God, people label you as crazy or nuts or you know not mentally balanced. So there is a rising tide of secularism which is rejecting the idea of God and Jesus Christ, and we see numbers of believers plummeting churchgoers plummeting over the last few decades and it's going to probably continue to increase so we have this you know gathering together we're supposed to gather them in and then we have this also separation this is clearly set forth in the scriptures if you go to third nephi 21 if you are a book of mormon toting person you go there and you can see right there it talks about the separation of the righteous and the wicked before the second coming. Now, in addition to that, during this tribulation period, there's a lot of other stuff going on. There's cleansing, right? The purification. There's building up of Zion. All going to hit this hard. We have to build Zion before the Savior comes, not after. Okay? It has to be done before. Uh, how much it has to be built up, I don't know. But it has to be done. So we're also going to have these, I'm going to talk about cleansing for a minute, because I have identified three major movements in the book of Revelation that I believe are going to occur in cleansing the earth, okay? 
and here's how it goes. You ready? Three phases, and I believe they're sequential. The first phase is man versus man. Men turning on men and women turning on one another at a countrywide level, at a maybe even local levels or national levels, and also within families. Okay, man versus man fighting the worst kind that you can imagine is happening now and will come to our shores as well. We're not going to be exempt. It's it, this is part of the process. And this is what this is what I read in the book of Revelation that John has been shown. The second phase is uh, nature versus man where there will be great upheavals in our day. Earthquakes, volcanic activity, pollution, all kinds of horrible things unleashed. We read about a third of all life dying, right? A third of the ocean, a third of the animals. What is causing this? Is it a meteor? Is it a, is it a, there, there's a, there's a list of things. If you read, read about the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they say in Revelation, I think it's chapter six. We're going to talk all about that, by the way, but we're just, I'm just laying a general uh, picture of all this going on. So we have this uh, man versus man, or man versus man, nature versus man, and the third one is God versus man. This is when he sends the angels down. You read in the book of Revelation how the martyrs, and think of all the martyrs of the early Christians, just as one sliver of an example historically. And they're crying out for the Lord to deem them and to justify them and for vengeance, but vengeance is God's. And God tells them to wait a while. And he gives them a white robe while they're waiting. But retribution is coming. And so God eventually unleashes the angels and then there's a spiritual, maybe physical cleansing that's going to occur. And we're not exempt. The cleansing occurs among his people. In fact, it says in the scriptures, in the Doctrine and Covenants, upon my house shall it begin, and from my house shall it go forth. So, he's going to cleanse the inner vessel initially. So, tribulation, gathering, separation, cleansing, and then this building of the kingdom of God. We've, we've had a place indicated anciently, not anciently, but a long time ago, 1840s, 1830s, especially early 1830s, that the place for the gathering of Zion, the building of Zion, is going to be as the center of it. It's going to be in Missouri. So we'll see how that unfolds. If God's had any change of plans, I don't know. But it's very clear in our scripture that that's the kind of the, the place. All right. Then comes the second coming, where the sign of the Son of Man comes. We're going to talk about if this is pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, or post-tribulation, because this is a topic of discussion among evangelists and other practicing Christians. When will the second coming come? Because there's a people being caught up to meet him. And then the millennium comes. And of course, the second coming, there's a burning that talked about in Malachi chapter 4. So there's a lot here to unpack. But that's the basic pattern that I see. Now here's the teaser at the end that I wanted to share with you to think about. Because you have to really, really ponder this to, to, to get the right conclusion. My first point about un unlocking revelation and unlocking the scriptures about the end times is to understand the perception of the writers as much as we can. So 
let's just look real quickly. The entire Bible, as far as I can see, from Genesis to Revelation, was all written down and given to Jews, either Jewish by religion and background, or Jews converted to Christianity. Okay, it's all a book from the Jews. It's a book of the Jews. Thank you for this book. I mean, what what amazing price was paid to get this book handed down to us today. And there's a phrase used in the Old Testament to refer to those who are not Jewish. And the word is Gentile. And the word for Gentile in the Hebrew is Goya, G-O-Y-A. I think plural is Goyim. Again, forgive my pronunciation, but it's G-O-Y-I-M. Now, sometimes the King James authors will take the word Goya and they'll translate it as heathen in English. There is no difference in the root word for a Gentile or a heathen than the word Goya or Goyim, plural. Okay? So, when they're talking about heathens and Gentiles, they're talking about those that aren't Jews. Well, let's go to the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon, Nephi is a descendant of Manasseh, if I remember right. Lehi is a descendant of Manasseh, probably his wife. They're from that tribe. And so, when they talk about Gentiles, when the angel comes to talk to Nephi about Gentiles, who are they talking about? Are they talking about members of a church, or are they still using the term to refer to those who are not Jewish? So I want you to think about that as you contemplate the term Gentile. Who is a Gentile? And who is using the term Gentile? And who are they referring to? When they talk about Gentiles. Or, huh, bigger yet, the house of Israel. Is the house of Israel only those that are blood descendants of Israel? Or what about those who have accepted the covenant? Are they part of the house of Israel? And when can we know the difference, especially in the Book of Mormon? It's pretty clear in the Bible, but in the Book of Mormon, when are we talking about one or the other? So be thinking about that. That's a big key to unlocking the prophecies, especially in the Book of Mormon, is understanding who Nephi and Jesus and others are referring to when they use the word Gentile or House of Israel. That's it for today. Thank you for listening.